Right, welcome everyone. Thank you very much all for coming to the first ever Yorkshire Young Fabians event. Um, you're all very welcome. First, I'll just go through the safe space policy very quickly that is operating here. Um, any marks considered, uh, remarks considered offensive on grounds of gender, race, um, ethnicity, etc., um, will be um, grounds for removal from the room. We don't call it uh, zero tolerance policy on that. So um, if anyone is interested in tweeting during the event, we are using the hashtag, hashtag Yorkshire Young Fabians. Um, so please do if you've got questions as well. Um, I will now introduce the panel. On my left, I've got Alice Smart, who is the councillor for Armley in Leeds. Um, she currently sits on the scrutiny board for adult social services, public health and the NHS, as well as being on the joint plans panel. Um, on my right, we've got Caroline Flint, MP for Don Valley since 1997. Uh, Caroline's been a minister in various departments since 2005, including Minister in, uh, for Employment, Minister for Housing and Planning and Minister for Europe. Uh, and she also served in Ed Miliband's Shadow Cabinet uh, as both Shadow Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government and Shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. And then finally, on my right, we have Carlo Bert Fulcher, who is the Regional Outreach Officer for the Young Fabians. Uh, he spends most of his time um, organising events in Scotland, Manchester, Leeds, and everywhere outside <coughs> of London, um, events like the one we've got today. Um, so we're delighted to welcome all our panellists here. Um, today we're going to be discussing the Northern Powerhouse, what it means for Labour, what it means more generally, and how it can be used both to reconnect with voters in the North, um, as well as building Labour's policy. Um, format of the event will be, I'll give each of our uh, panellists 10 minutes, candidates. <laughs> no, no election today, um, each of our panellists 10 minutes to speak um, on our topic, and then we will open it up to the floor for questions, so please do get your questions ready. You didn't tell us who you are. Oh, <laughs> I'm Samuel Marley stevens I'm a, a, a Labour Party member up here in Leeds and a Fabian Society member, um, and I'm hosting the uh, debate for today. So, Alice, if you'd like to start off. Okay, thanks, Sam. As an elected member of Leeds City Council, the biggest local authority outside of Nip, north of Birmingham, discussions of devolution and the Northern Powerhouse are never too far away. Over the past few weeks, we've seen campaigns to become the Metro Mayor of Northern Cities kick off and it's likely that something similar will happen in West Yorkshire in the not-too-distant future. There are lots of questions that need answering about whether devolution will bring about real change for people in the North, and whether it will benefit Labour. But I think it's great that mainstream politicians are talking about the North and trying to offer real solutions for our part of the country. There are a number of potential benefits that, could bring, that devolution could bring to the North. Fiscal devolution to enable increased spending on transport infrastructure and, the, and local health services and giving local communities greater influence over what happens to them in their area. But there are also a number of challenges and underlying concerns. Will this simply be a token transfer of powers from one set of politicians to another? Will the Tories simply use this as a stick to beat Labour councils with and to pin the blame for local cuts squarely on us? In spite of this, Labour can't be seen as being afraid of devolution. Instead, this is a moment to be bold, to let go and let communities shape the devolved future they want to see. Our party leadership and the Parliamentary Labour Party can learn a lot from Labour in power in the North. City councils like Leeds and Manchester are finding innovative ways to make social and economic progress in spite of funding shortfalls. Leeds is the UK's fastest growing economy 
And that isn't because of George Osborne, it's because of the Labour Council. We need to empower Labour councils who are minimising the worst effects of the cuts and showing the positive difference Labour in power can make. It's vital that any devolution deal that is drawn up in this region or the next is more than a token displacement of powers. It is of the highest importance that any movement of power is followed by funding, because ultimately you can't empower local councils if you impoverish them. The principle of devolution resonates with a lot of local politicians in the north. We need local solutions to local problems, and we've known for a long time that Westminster doesn't have all the answers. It's great that Westminster heavyweights like Andy Burnham and Luciana Berger want to get stuck into running our northern cities, but it's also important to remember the likes of Judith Blake and Peter Box, who are doing this day in, day out, and rarely get the support or recognition they deserve. Moving on to what Labour needs to say to reach out to the north, it's important to note that Labour traditionally does very well in the north. The majority of councils and MPs in northern England are Labour, so it's easy to dismiss the north as an area where Labour doesn't need to do much work. But we can't be complacent. The decline in Labour support in Scotland showed how quickly a Labour heartland can be demolished. It also taught us that there can be no no-go areas for Labour if we're going to win a majority at the next general election. And that just because we have the majority of seats in Northern England doesn't mean we shouldn't be striving to gain more. I'm not sure whether this, think, this means we need a specific and distinct message to Northern voters. I certainly think our party leader needs to have a clear plan for devolving power to local communities and regenerating northern cities. But that aside, I don't think there is anything fundamentally different about the challenges facing working people in the north and working people in the south. There are coastal towns in the southwest that feel a lot like towns in northern England, and the issues facing families in these towns won't be dissimilar to the issues facing families here in Leeds. For the past couple of years, George Osborne has been talking about the northern powerhouse. Despite this being a Tory initiative, I'm sure I'm not the only Labour politician who, despite myself, wanted it to, su to succeed. I wanted a Northern powerhouse that does what it says on the tin and hoped it would bring more growth, prosperity and opportunities to our Northern cities and give them the chance to control their own destinies. While the reality is that, is that Osborne's Northern powerhouse hasn't improved the lives of people in the North, the Tories have in many ways won the argument. The mere fact that we are speaking at a Labour Party event about the Northern powerhouse shows that we've accepted their agenda to a degree, and we are using their terminology, even if we don't support their actions. They've won the war of the words on the Northern Powerhouse, just like we did with the bedroom tax, which no one calls the spare room subsidy anymore. Even if Osborne hasn't matched words with actions, he has got people talking about the North and the Tories in a positive way, which in some ways is very rare. But putting the use of the term Northern Powerhouse aside, Osborne has drastically failed to follow rhetoric with action, and we shouldn't allow the Tories to get away with this. We should defend the idea of the Northern Powerhouse, because in principle it's something Labour should be get behind and hold the Tories to account over their failure to deliver on their promises. Going forward, I'd like to see Labour arguing for a more ambitious devolution that shapes a new relationship between citizens and the state and redefines the relationship between the local and national government. We need to spend more time talking about what we would do with additional funding and powers. For instance, Regional devolution has the potential to play a pivotal role in solving the national housing crisis by giving northern cities greater powers and freedoms when it comes to building affordable housing. It's not good enough for us just to complain that there isn't enough power or there isn't enough money. We need to show that we are the party of the north and we have the answers. I've lived in northern England all my life and I'm very proud of our part of the world. I don't believe that our party of the country is on the decline and it frustrates me when politicians talk about us like we're the weak link. 
Labour shouldn't see the North as a barrier that we need to overcome on our route back to government, but one of the strongest branches of our movement and our country. We need to stop berating the North and utilise it to make our party and our nation stronger. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alice. Caroline? Um, thanks very much. Is it Samuel or Sam? It's Samuel. Samuel. Yeah. Um, and just say congratulations for setting up uh, the Yorkshire uh, Fabians group. It's, it's really good. I've been a member for the Fabians nearly as long as I've been a member of the Labour Party, and that's a very long time. And, uh, and I think part of the Fabian message is about evolving politics, which I suppose actually is part of the theme of what we're discussing this evening, the evolving uh, landscape of devolution across the UK. So I thought I'd just start by just saying a little bit about the context of uh, where we are in terms of, if you like, Labour's uh, position on devolution and, uh, and to bring us up to speed from where I think we made some huge pioneering changes uh, in 97 after winning that general election, but where I think it's faltered and where I think the Tories have sought to fill a gap that we're going to have to deal with as members of the Labour Party uh, and those who don't want to just leave it to the Tories to run this agenda. So. I got elected in, in 1997, and in many respects, you know, it was the pioneering work of the Labour government that led to the creation of the Scottish Parliament, that led to the Welsh Assembly, uh, that started to um, uh, reform the <coughs> House of Laws and do something that hadn't been done for many, many years uh, to alter uh, the composition of that chamber. I have to say I voted to abolish it twice. Uh, in the time I've been an MP, and we're not anywhere near that yet. But we did help create the Scottish Parliament, which was a massive big change. It was actually uh, one of the five pledges of the founder of our party, or one of the founders of our party, Keir Hardy, and, of course, the Welsh Assembly, and through the Good Friday Agreement, um, led to what we have today in terms of Northern Ireland and the power-sharing uh, that happens in uh, Northern Ireland today between parties who, 20 years ago, were barely speaking to each other, let alone sitting in the same room to discuss education and health, energy policies and so on. We then faltered in that we started to, under John Prescott, uh, try to evolve a sense of what English devolution would look like, and that took the form of regional assemblies. And uh, for those of you, all of you in here probably too young, but who may have studied it, we did have a vote on uh, a regional assembly, an English regional assembly, and it was decided that rather than do it in terms of, a, if you like, across the whole of England, um, we did it rather piecemeal. And in that way, uh, there was a vote in the northeast of England about whether we'd have one or not. Now, I think the northeast was chosen partly because um, it was quite a small, a small region, but also there was already a development between Newcastle, Sunderland, Durham and the other authorities, a discussion about how they would be working together. And to be honest, thinking about it at the time, I think there was a sense that that would be, if you like, the trailblazer uh, for John Prescott's policies to span out across the rest of England. <coughs> Didn't happen because the North East voted decisively against having a regional assembly. And I think part of that was because I remember at the time Harriet Harman on an episode of Question Time, and it was set in the North East, I think it was a week or two before the actual vote. And when she was quite rightly asked, but what does it mean? What powers are we actually going to have? She couldn't really answer that question. She couldn't answer that question, not because that was Harriet's fault. It was because actually 
as a government, we actually really hadn't got the answer to that question. And if you can't answer that question, why would the public, who, to be honest, only turn out in the low 30s for local council elections, really feel enthused to turn out for what they saw as just another tier of bureaucracy, another tier of local government that maybe they didn't feel um, uh, attached to. On top of that, we then experimented with mayors um, and a number of places, Hartlepool, Doncaster and others, uh, went down that mayoral route, but it was quite experimental. And it was very much left, if you liked, to local authorities to decide. So there wasn't much leadership, if you like, in terms of brokering uh, that new sense of uh, what representation should be like. And it's been pretty patchwork along the way in terms of how that has evolved. Um, in some areas, there have been ballots, like we had in Doncaster, about whether we would continue with it, and actually we chose to. But I think in Milton Keynes, for example, they decided not to continue with a, a mayoral model. And then let's go back to Scotland. Uh, and one thing I thought was very interesting about the Scottish referendum in 2014 was that half the people taking that vote in that vote didn't actually know what powers had been devolved to Scotland. So when I was up there knocking on the door, I went up about five times in the lead-up to the referendum and was meeting Scottish voters, and they would be saying to me, but we want, to we want to run our health service, or we want to run this, or we want to that. And I would say, but actually, those are powers the Scottish Parliament have already got. For a number of different reasons, partly to do with how well played the SNP acted in that, but also partly to do with actually Labour hadn't really developed the sense of devolution beyond establishing the Scottish Parliament, you could understand why it was confusing, and while the sense of isolation and Westminster running it all played very well in terms of that election. So we came out of power, and then we had the coalition. The coalition government scrapped the RDAs, um, and then they realised that Whitehall couldn't make all the decisions, so they decided to set up the LEPs based on city regions. They then thought they'd have the police and crime commissioners as well as another way to enhance uh, democracy. And what we found was actually, to be honest, the public weren't that interested in that. In fact, the turnout for police and crime commissioners is even lower than it is for a lot of council elections. They then had something called the localism bill, which was going to provide all sorts of opportunities for local communities to have more say. But what we found out really, <laughs> as it went on, it didn't really add up to very much. Because when local communities um, in, in a number of areas, Labour and Tory, said, well, do you know what, we want to stop this or we want to stop that, they found out that actually um, that wasn't necessarily going to be the case. Because obviously when it comes to some big infrastructure issues around housing or transport or other infrastructure, the local big authority is going to have, want to have some say in that. And then we had the general election and the Tories won. I think what we found with localism, that it didn't, hasn't worked, partly for the reason I've just said, that there was a conflict between smaller communities and larger councils on some of the bigger issues. Secondly, actually, the government's guidance from its own department for communities and local government uh, clearly put brakes on what local communities, the smaller local communities, could do. But also, the cuts have had an impact as well because it's hard to feel engaged in deciding the way in which your local services might be developed if councils, and we've suffered badly from this in Yorkshire and elsewhere in the north of England, have had the money taken away from them to think about a different way to deliver local services much closer to where people are and where local people feel more engaged in what they do. Now, of course, in Doncaster, I'm sure in Leeds, 
Because of the cuts, things have happened like community libraries and, and so on. And to be honest, in my own constituency, it's been fantastic in some areas where the community have managed to come together and take that on board. But not every community has got the capacity to do that. And in some other areas, particularly social care, I think it's been extremely difficult trying to have a, a new agenda for dealing with the demographic of a rising uh, number of people living longer and all the things associated with that. Um, PCCs, we've just gone through a round of another elections. Um, look, I think the PCCs, I'm sure, are doing a, a good job as best as they can, but there are bigger issues about policing and how it's structured that needs to be looked at as far as I personally am concerned on that. I think we've got too many police forces for a start. I think the nature of crime today is we've got to much, look much better at some of the bigger issues around internet crime, about uh, vice, about organised crime. I just think the number of forces we've got at the moment just doesn't make sense. And, of course, we've had uh, this move to create the metro mayors and the city regions. Um, now, why are the Tories doing this? And Alice touched upon this in, in her contribution as well. I think partly it is because they do recognise that um, they, not everything can be run from Whitehall. And actually, when it comes to economic drive, if it's not happening in the areas where it needs to be happening and they feel engaged in that, you can't run that from Whitehall. I think it is about... Uh, stealing Labour's clothes, that particularly George Osborne has gone on the offensive around a northern powerhouse uh, and in other ways in which they've now created something called the National Living Wage, which is just an increased national minimum wage, is about stealing Labour's clothes on a number of areas that we've tended to um, uh, feel that we had total ownership of. It has been a carrot and stick. Um, all the areas that are adopting mayors I think most of them said we don't want a mayor and then they were told, well, unless you have a mayor, you won't get these powers. So they've all gone down that route. Uh, it was an offer uh, they couldn't refuse. And also, I think it does, not now, but maybe down the road, and again, I think Alice touched upon this, it insulates a Tory government against criticism if something fails in one of these northern powerhouse uh, jurisdictions. So if health fails in Manchester, for which they are now being given responsibility for, the question is who's to blame. So how can Labour ensure the Northern Powerhouse works? And here's just a few uh, reflections on that. First of all, the Labour Party needs to establish economic credibility to win a general election. Because if we win a general election, we can look, I hope, more thoughtfully than the present government in how we, make, how we can help to ensure we can provide the Northern Powerhouse with the freedoms and resources to make it thrive. Secondly, we've got to make sure that the debate is not centred on an argument of North versus South. I just don't think that gets us anywhere. Um, London and the South East are the powerhouse of the country. Um, there are inequalities in that, but the truth is that's not going to change. The question is, is how can we make sure the North is given some of the, those resources, and I'll touch upon that in more detail in a minute, and the powers to compete with the South East and London, but also recognising some of the synergy that can help both areas work well. The Northern Powerhouse cannot exist on the basis that its customer base is only in the North. It needs to create the economic activity and growth that means that firms in the North are winning contracts in the South, and not only that, beyond UK borders as well. So we have to make sure that we aren't just seen as victims in all of this, but we are seen to really power ourselves. And in that way, we should be focusing in what powers do we need in the North 
to ensure that economic growth but also the social benefits that arise out of that. The debate also needs to think beyond cities. Um, one of the aspects of this EU referendum debate at the moment, I feel, in one of the problems for those of us who are supporting the Remain campaign is so much of provincial Britain feels left behind and really not cared about very much. Um, I actually think over the last 20 years we've seen quite a big renaissance in our major cities. You know, Leeds and Birmingham and Manchester. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's been actually a very good sign of success. It's one of the reasons I think we are at that point in which we can talk about that greater devolution. But the city region has got to be much more than the city in which that region lives. If it is to work and if we don't repeat the mistakes of Whitehall in leaving those communities behind. City regions provide an opportunity to develop a strong vision that is wider and a much more diverse uh, in terms of what it is reaching out to. But to make it work, I think there are two things that are going to be really important in all this. I think one is strong governance in the sense of scrutiny, but also about wherever you live within the city region, you feel that there is a sense that you have a say and you know how it works. Most people don't even know what their local authority is providing. So we've got to make a huge jump to make sure we don't have too many competing mechanisms of governance that make it even harder for the public to understand where they relate to it and where they fit in. I also think there are lots of things that are important, but I think transport is really, really essential. Because, you know, one of the things is, you know, in my own area of Doncaster, which, where I live and where I represent, the volume jobs that existed under mining or the railways are not going to be recreated in the future in the same way. We want to create more jobs in Doncaster, but what we also need is the connectivity through a transport system that allows more people within the north to move freely between home and work, but also socially between family members and friends as well. I think that connectivity that transport brings can create a basis in which we can look at the shared benefits of a city region rather than sometimes, you know, pitting one area against another. Look, when I became an MP, one of my first tasks was to, tasks was to try and make sure an RAF base didn't become another prison but became a regional airport. Um, if I could tell you how many people in Doncaster didn't necessarily want Sheffield in the title for that airport, they loved Robin, Robin Hood because it didn't have Sheffield in the title. Um, that says something about the parochialism that exists. So to break that down, it's the connectivity of bringing areas together whilst people still having their sense of ident identity for the place where they live and the value of that place, particularly small town and village north uh, as part of that. And then it's resources. By 2020, the government are telling us they're going to devolve all business rates. I've, I was saying in the car up here to my husband, it's interesting that debate because on the one hand they're devolving all business rates but then in the chamber when they're talking about the budget they say they're getting rid of business rates for small businesses. A lot of our small town communities is the small businesses that are the employers in that area. So I'm not quite sure what the business take is going to be but let me put it in this context for all of you. Even by devolving all the business rates by 2020 that is less than 10% of the total tax base. Let's look to Canada. Canada, on an equivalent level, receives 50% of the total tax base, tax base of Canada. Germany, 35%. Tokyo, 80%. That is the, the difference, the margins of difference of cities able to do things uh, compared with what 
we might be able to do. So it's all very well for the government to recognise the cities that cities drive economic growth, but they only control two taxes, and that's council tax and business rates. And even on business rates, budgets say there isn't going to be any for small businesses. So it is really important that Labour looks at this area about where does a direct allocation of national funds from income tax or VAT fit into this? Where do municipal bonds fit into this? to enable the city regions to actually get in the big money for the big infrastructure projects like transport that will be required. So on this particular issue around the finances, our city regions, the northern powerhouse, has to be able to raise more cash, and that, might, that must mean that central government has to give more. There has to be less ring fencing, and there has to be more multi-year agreements. And finally, sorry, I'm sure I've gone over no, my time. Fine. Sorry about that. Um, we need, what else do we need as ingredients? We need strong political leadership. We need effective long-term strategic planning. We need appropriate accountability. I sit on the Public Accounts Committee. We get reports from the National Audit Office on every aspect of government spending. We watch the money. We see how the money is spent. The Tories got rid of the Audit Commission. There is no Public Accounts Committee equivalent for dealing with devolution in England. And that's going to be important because it goes back to the question about who gets the blame if something goes wrong. And I just think it's important in terms of public confidence and good governance. What does this mean for democracy? Well, it's another set of elections to fight. In the London mayoral election, does anyone know what the turnout was in that election? 60? 60? 60 plus. 60 plus. 60 plus. 40? Don't look at my notes. I didn't. Um, <laughs> if I looked at my notes, I would have said... No, no, was it 46%? 46% turnout. Now, um, my first job after university was working for the GLC and Iliot, actually. And, and, uh, and so in the most, if you like, known election in terms of council elections, you know, the most well-known mayoral election in the whole of the UK that has a long history, even, go, even though it wasn't a mayor going back to the GLC and Iliot days, um, they could only manage 46% in what was... Let be, let's be honest, a very visible election uh, with a lot of contra controversies involved in the campaigns in that election, particularly for the Tory side, which you would have thought might have mustered it up to 60% or something like that. So let's be wary about this. Creating a structure, we shall build it, they shall come, doesn't work. But we need to look at how it can give us an opportunity to engage. I think the lesson for councils, I think the lesson for metro mayors when it comes to democracy, is democracy is hard work. It's not a tick box by creating a metro mayor or devolving more powers. The question for us, and I think this was one of the questions from Scotland as well, is beyond the structures, how do we devolve power with these powers to enable communities to make more decisions that they feel have a sense of ownership in and responsibility for as well? And I think in that way, we can make the transfer of Whitehall to the Town Hall or the City Hall or the Metro Hall a success. Thank you. Sure. <clears throat> right, uh, well, thanks, everyone, for, uh, for coming. Uh, it's great to be here in, in Leeds myself. Um, until this year, we didn't really have very much happening outside London, a few events in Manchester. Uh, but it's, it's really great that we can get a room of... I think there's 20 of you and four of us, so nearly 25 of us 
on a Friday night. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, and I, just before I start, I want to thank uh, Dan Ward, Adam Smith, and, and Sam uh, for for really helping me organise this. Uh, it couldn't have happened without them, and future events can't happen without you. Uh, so if you want to be involved, please come and speak to me or speak to one of them. Um, but but we we need you we need you to come and get involved and drive this project forward. Uh, so hopefully you will. Um, and uh, I will just say um, my excuse for putting myself on a panel because that's not really a polite thing to do is that people dropped out at the last minute, and that's the same excuse for. If I mess up the next 10 minutes, I wrote this piece on the train coming up, but I haven't practiced it, so you can't blame me. It's, it's not my fault. It's, uh, I won't name the people whose fault it was. <laughs> Rayhan Huck, if you want to... I should get extra brownie points, though, shouldn't I? Because I've kept her coming. Yes. And I've had to travel here as well. Well, yes, yes indeed. You, you, I mean, yeah, I, there isn't a brownie point monitor, but nonetheless, I'm sure it would have gone up. Um, so anyway, so... Turning to the Northern Powerhouse, I think it's worth asking the question before we decide what Labour's version should be of what the current government's version is. Um, I'm not sure they know, and, and insofar as they do, I think it's broadly, well, elements are, are broadly misconceived. So, first, well, I think, it's, I think it's kind of three things, I would say it was mostly. Firstly, it's a slogan, right? Like, I can imagine George Osborne and his advisor were sat around chatting and were like, well, what do we do out the North? We don't get many votes there. They're a bit poorer than the South. What should we do? Uh, kind of industry. Powerhouse seems kind of like economic growth. Let's, let's use that, right? That's kind of how they came up with it, I think. And, and, and broadly speaking, you know, it, it, I guess it depends whether you, whether you consider it smart or patronising, whether it's a good thing. But they're, they're using the Northern Powerhouse to mean or to refer to any policy that relates to the North in any way is part of the Northern Powerhouse project, right? So it's either a very effective way of branding a lot of policies to making sure they cut through, or it's a quite patronising way of, of saying, oh, we're listening to you guys. This policy affects you. Either way... Um, I mean, I think it, as, a, as a clue, well, a clue, as a, as a conclusion uh, fairly early on, I think it would be difficult for Labour to, to, to come up with a new version of the Northern Powerhouse in terms of the terminology. As Alice said, the Tories have won this. The words exist. Uh, we, we probably, however, could co-opt them. They've almost been too successful in that it's, it's now a phrase everyone is aware of and we can use it without people thinking that's the Tories. Um, Anyway, the second thing that I think the Northern Powerhouse is about, at least according to the government, is uh, a vague idea that some more investment is required. And specifically, that, that we need to spend a lot of money, or some money, or uh, maybe not any money, but hopefully it will happen anyway, connecting up northern cities by train. Right? That seems to be the, the overwhelming focus of what, what the government talks about. Uh, it didn't stop them trying to cancel a project that was already in existence before the term Northern Powerhouse was created to connect, connect, connect Manchester and Leeds. So, in effect, the term made no difference at all. Uh, fortunately, that was, was cancelled. Um, or at least the, the cancelling of the project was cancelled, to be, to be clear. Um, uh, as a clue for later, I don't think this should be a key priority at all. I think it's the opposite. I think we need to concentrate on connecting up... Uh, towns to, to cities that are nearby and, and making connections within cities. I think that should be the priority. Um, and, and the third thing that this is about, which isn't really related to the other two at all, is, as has been discussed uh, extensively already, devolution. Now, devolution is obviously a different idea to let's get some economic growth in the north, um, uh, primarily because it exists all over the place. It exists in Wales and Scotland, and a devolution deal has been struck with Cornwall, where, where I'm originally from. It's, it's not a very good one. Uh, we Labour councillors, there aren't many of us, but or aren't many of them, but they voted against it. But um, but nonetheless, um, you know, it's it's not an entirely northern concept. Um, but also because you know, like I say, it's not about economic growth. It's about service provision. It's about empowerment. It's about identity. Whatever whatever those things are, primarily they're not about growth. So it, as I say, the Northern Powerhouse uses a catch-all for things that are vaguely to do with the North, 
uh, rather than rather than a set of specific targeted policies that are really going to make a difference across the rest of the country. So that's that's my first slightly cynical look at it. Um, but I think there are there are two things worth unpacking and worth focusing on in uh, in crafting Labour's response to what the Tories have done so far. The first is devolution, and the second is about transport. Um, so looking at devolution, um, I'll, I'll look at some of the risks for us first. Um, so I've been running similar events to this uh, across the country. We have one in Birmingham, we have one in Manchester, um, and and one and, and one thing that that comes up at both of these events, and as, as comes up at other other events you get at conferences too, where this is regularly discussed, is that lots of these devolution deals have been struck without any real consultation with the community. So what what's generally seem to have happened is that lots of council leaders have got into a room with some management consultants and some figures from uh, DCLG and the Treasury and they have come up with a devolution deal at the end. And obviously things have been discussed in the press but broadly speaking that is how it has been perceived by uh, many uh, backbenchers on councils um, and, and the public to some extent to the extent that they're engaged but actually they're so disenfranchised from this process they're not generally aware that they've been ignored, right? At least that's, that's what you get coming out of Manchester or Birmingham. I don't, that's with the more qualified to say about Leeds, um, but um, you know, so, so that's 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 a problem in and of itself. Um, but it's it's problematic because this was a big opportunity to properly speak to the community, to speak to a local sense of identity, and say we are your Labour councils, we are representing you. What do you want? And to try and make people feel more involved in the politics that is ultimately for them, and more involved with the Labour Party and and. And, and kind of perceive the Labour Party as being on their side and act, acting in, in their interest. So that's, that's not great either. But the bigger worry that I have is that because George Osborne has, you know, he's, he's battered local governments in his budget so far, uh, there is a, a general suspicion that he, he will seek to uh, make stronger cuts in areas where powers are more devolved. So in Manchester, where they're going to take on running at the NHS, you know, that... that if, if NHS services in Manchester worsen because of funding cuts, um, that, that could be seen as something that we will be blamed for. Now, if we had, from the start, had you know, wide community involvement with all of these processes, I think it would have been easier to explain to people, if there are large numbers of cuts to council budgets or to, to local budgets, why those things have happened uh, and whose fault it is. But that lack of engagement, I think, creates an extra risk that people will turn around and say, well, you got us this devolved administration, uh, and now things are worse, it's your fault. Now, I hope that won't happen, and I hope that we can make a lot of effort to explain to people, you know, why, why decisions are taken, um, but there is a risk there, and I think it's something we need to be aware of. Um, however, I would never, never criticise uh, Labour councils for accepting these devolution deals, and I certainly, I would, I would try to avoid criticising them for the way they were accepted, because obviously, you know, they had to work within the political constraints they were given by, by Osborne and, and by the civil service. Uh, and broadly speaking, you know, we have a Tory government. They, they have made a, you know, a series of aggressive decisions about funding uh, for various services. And obviously it is a, can only be a good thing that Labour councils uh, and, and Labour mayoralties or, you know, the, the, the establishment of Labour representatives in, in places that, that, that aren't Westminster can take more power and look after our people as, as well as possible. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't criticise them for that, and I think it's an opportunity to, to improve policymaking. And one thing I'd say further, in terms of engaging with voters, yeah, we, we might have missed the chance to engage with regard to the deals themselves, but there will be a time very soon 
when all of the great cities of this country, London, Bristol, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, etc., or at least all the great cities of England, are run by Labour mayors. And when that happens, you know, obviously there are, there are going to be differences between cities. That's why we need devolution. But there are going to be so many areas, so many, where the same solution is correct or where, uh, where one city can learn from another uh, and, and that city can improve and where you can have joined up policy making. And if we can find a way of making those administrations talk to each other, if we can find a way of making them work together with similar messaging, if we can find a way of taking that message to the rest of the country and say, look, here is a real credible uh, alternative to, to the Tory model of governance. It's run by real people. It really works. You can see the results then we have an excellent chance not just of persuading voters in the North to back Labour, but persuading voters across the country to back the Labour Party. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's an opportunity that, that if we get it right, uh, it, could, it could make a massive difference uh, electorally. Um, so moving on to my second point, which is about transport. As I said before, the, the rhetoric and the, the policy proposals that you tended to get from the government were all about connecting up all the cities and creating this massive super city in the north that could rival the main cities of the world. Um, that, is, that is both an impractical suggestion in that you, you simply can't say, because there are good rail links between two cities, they're going to be one city. They, they aren't, right? Uh, and secondly, it kind of misses the point, right? If, if you look at places uh, where there are large cities relatively close together, what you will find is it's not how quickly the connections between those cities work that powers the growth in those areas. It's how well connected each of those cities are. In fact, being near another city isn't particularly helpful. What's helpful is having a really effective city that you live in, right? Um, so I think that we should instead be, instead of concentrating on linking up cities, we should concentrate on improving transport connections within each city. So there are a couple of reasons why this is, and this is the slightly more wonkish policy stuff. Um, this is a good idea. So firstly, like most business is done within one city, right? So you get senior, senior management might travel to other places, but the vast majority of workers do all of their work within one place. Uh, the second reason is that if you have better transport into and out of a city from surrounding towns uh, and from suburban areas, you massively increase the pool of workers that employers can hire from, right? Now, one of the problems the North has in terms of economic growth is that traditionally speaking, there are fewer university graduates that choose to live here. Now, that's not because people are stupider, right? It's because people graduate from university and move to London where most of the jobs are, okay? And obviously that's a vicious cycle because the jobs will stay in London because that's where all the graduates live. So if you can increase the pool of workers, then you, you gain some impetus towards overcoming that problem to some extent. So that's kind of key too. But the other thing that happens is that you massively improve the standard of the towns that now have better transport links and, and the suburban areas that have better transport links with the city centres, right? And these are the towns that, that Caroline was talking about, that feel left behind by globalisation, that you, know, you have very large UKIP votes in, that are likely to, to vote to leave the EU, right? Uh, and and you know, in many ways, the Labour government didn't didn't help those people nearly as much as we should have. Of course, there will always be things that you know that you look back on and regret. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame anyone, blame anyone for that. But that's happened. But getting better transport links between those towns and those suburban areas and the central cities would massively help to overcome that problem. And the third reason, the third reason that it's it's more important to develop transport within cities, is that generally speaking. The way, the way businesses operate and the infrastructure they used is shared in a geographical area, right? So your supply chain, the roads you use, um, the, the people that you sell to or you take your goods to, often they all exist within one area. And if you build that area up and you build that relatively densely, 
Um, and that's one of, the, one of the very effective things economically about London. You've got so much stuff in a very small area. Then you, you generate a very efficient uh, economic system and you generate much higher growth. Um, and, and one particular area, which again is particularly wonkish, but it's, it's quite nice, is that this doesn't happen with just goods uh, and, and physical things. It happens with ideas, right? So uh, if you look at Manhattan, you find that the best places for sort of intellectual transfer and the best places for uh, growth being driven by ideas uh, is, is, in a, is in a very tiny area. It's like about 750 meters you find that most transfers of knowledge occur within. Um, so that's, that's things like going to seminars, it's things like meeting people for lunch, it's things like uh, networking events, it's things like the fact that if you work near someone, you're likely to live near enough to someone to socialise with them, right? Um, and when you have a concentration of people that work in things like uh, business services, that's sort of very knowledge-intensive industries, you, you get a lot of cross-pollination ideas. Um, and so, you know, economic growth is generated in, in that fashion, and that's quite, that's quite nebulous, I suppose, to describe, but... You know, you can you can test these things and you get very real results. So that's why I think it's it's important that we concentrate on transport links within cities rather than between cities. Though between cities is important too. Um, and of course, you know, I guess I guess just to just to sort of round the reasoning off. Obviously, in London, transport links are excellent. Uh, I know I live there. Um, it, it, they're not so good anywhere else you go in the country. Um, so, you know, that's, that's fundamentally the thing that we, I think, most need to do in terms of in investment and infrastructure. And, and one final point then, um, what exactly would I like to see happen rather than what area I'd like to concentrate on? So, uh, there are lots of ideas that you could have for this. There are lots of innovative ways, but I think the simplest, most effective solution for most places is having an integrated transport authority, right? So they run the buses, they run the trams, they run the railways. Uh, and to some, maybe not the roads, but to some extent they, they look at traffic flows and things like that. Uh, and when you do that, you can have multimodal travel made much, more easy, much, much easier, you can have smart ticketing uh, much more effectively, and you can have a joined up policy, uh, you know, a, a joined up policy with the way these things operate, so that you know what you're trying to drive and which areas you're trying to benefit and, and, and where, you know, where you most need to increase your provision. Um, so I guess like TfL, which has a whole set of powers that you know, just, just the bus, people managing the buses or people managing the trains don't have. Uh, so, so I think that's all I wanted to say. Um, you know, there are risks and benefits from devolution uh, and, uh, and insofar as transport goes, uh, it's important to concentrate on cities rather than on connecting cities. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. There were some, some brilliant remarks there and a great deal to, to think about. Um, we're going to open up for questions now. Um, so I'll take them in threes. Uh, so, questions? Okay. Um, yeah, gentlemen, just so. Um, so my question really is. What's your to, name? Sorry. Hi. Uh, my name's Peter. I'm from uh, Stockport. Uh, so my question is to you, um, Caroline, and to you, uh, Alice. Um, what do you think the maximum extent of devolution looks like? Uh, what 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 powers have to be left in London? What can't be devolved? Mm. Fantastic. Um, any questions? Yep. Um, my question is kind of similar, but um, I think there's a risk when you talk about devolution that we think the more you devolve, the better. Mm. Um, and instead of actually looking at how much you can devolve, it's making the, like, the right devolution system and having the right links between local government and central government. And I think like, a good example of this is what you're saying about like, the taxes and business rates and council taxes, because 
pure power <coughs> region, pure poor city, mm. that isn't going to work for you. You, exactly. need a, you, know, you need an element of redistribution to the poor areas. So I think, so yeah, maybe just sort of, that's a question is, you know, how do we actually, instead of just saying, let's do power, <coughs> say, let's create a dynamic devolution that actually works for regions that actually has a link between central and local government that's yeah. there and allows yeah. redistribution and redevelopment. What's your name? Hamish. Hamish. Finally, yeah. um, hi, I'm Ben, I'm from Oldham. Um, one, I'm active in the Fabians in Manchester, and one of the ideas that was floated by uh, Red Roger Little come and speak to us a while ago, and one of the ideas he said about in a way to rebuild the North um, and re rebuild northern cities is by having a form of like, industrial revolution, but with every town having their individual specialty that works in a bigger network that could make the area more self-sufficient rather than have it like a super city in a way but with more industrial mm. more industrial mm. do you think that's um, possible with like the default pounds that have been given would uh, different tactics be taken? Okay, who'd like to take this? Um, well, I think they're all really good questions, and um, I'd love to be able to say to you I've got the blueprint for this book or the red print, um, but I haven't. But I think it's a I do think this thing about, you know, I think it's an evolving situation here. And I think a certain amount of humility needs to enter into the discussions as well, because otherwise, if it's just a power grabbing, you might end up making some of the same mistakes that Whitehall's made, I think, which goes to the point about, you know, who is actually discussing what devolution should mean for the North or for the Southwest or anywhere else. You know, after all the discussions and all the horse trading that's going on, are the people of Doncaster, Leeds, or Stockport, or you know, um, uh, or Oldham, any the wiser uh, for what is really happening now? We can't be naive about this. There's always going to be a bit of that disconnect because most people aren't anoraks, and they're not that engaged in what's going on. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And ignorance isn't a sin because they're too busy getting on with their lives. And actually, sometimes what I have he heard over many, many years. Um, campaigning is sometimes they say look you know you we pay you to make the decisions but we want actually the outcome to be a good education for our kids health service when I need it and a job on my doorstep that I can go to and get to easily that's going to keep me in work and look after my family um, that's what you're paid for to sort out and sometimes the public contradict themselves on this. On the one hand, they hate everyone who's involved in politics. On the other hand, they want you to make these decisions. And there is this disconnect here. That's why I think it should be an evolving situation and why I sort of understand it is absolutely right. If I look at, um, and you're, the, the, you know, people here from the Northwest will know better than I. It does seem to me, I, I, I know Richard least uh, reasonably well, um, that actually what's happened in the greater Manchester area is that for some time now, they have seized the initiative to actually get together and say, you know, even though most of them are, are Labour controlled, you know, you've got Trafford, which is conservative and has been conservative during the period when they were setting up the combined authority. They took the opportunity to try and get everyone in the room and say, look, what better way can we make sense of the way our region works and what can we do about it? <coughs> And therefore, it isn't any wonder that Manchester in particular, the Greater Manchester area, is one of the pioneers in this new devolution settlement that the Tory government is brokering with them. However, there are dangers within this. Let's take the health service, for example. 
where uh, an area is saying, we're going to give you the health service to run, given everything we know about what is currently stresses and strains on the health service. So what does that mean in terms of running the health service across Greater Manchester? Does that mean that they will decide a junior doctor's contract, or is that going to be decided by Whitehall? Who is going to set the standards for the drugs that are able to be prescribed by doctors or paid for by local commissioning groups? I sort of think, actually, that still has to be done nationally because we have to have a safety, um, if you like, threshold in which that is delivered through. Who organises the training of doctors and nurses and other health professionals? You know, is that going to be all done by you know, the Greater Manchester area or what role will the Royal Colleges have in the way that they already have today? And I don't think they've made such a big success of that, I have to say, but that's a personal point of view, not a Labour Party point of view. So these are really important, these questions about what it should mean and therefore how it should evolve. Because the worst case scenario is that all this amount of discussion and energy that's going into shaping this you know, new future um, ends up being you know, less than what it's made out to be. Or it fails, and therefore who gets the blame? And that's why I think governance is very important in all of this. Um, and it's why, you know, on the Public Accounts Committee, um, which is basically we, we follow money and we look at how government spe departments spend money and how arms-length organisations spend money, we're going to have a look at what should be, if you like, the governance arrangement for scrutiny about how devolved powers in England uh, will apply and who will scrutinise that, because I think that's, that's very important. I think that covers some of it, and the, and the point you made, Hamish, about redistribution. Look, if we're talking about Canterbury or somewhere, you know, I'm trying to think of a you know, relatively small town. Let's look at Canterbury, um, or let's look at Brighton compared to Barnsley. The business take from the business rates in Brighton would absolutely dwarf, I would imagine, and I, might, I don't want to be speaking out of turn if it's not the case, what Barnsley get. Westminster Council could literally pave the streets with gold if it was based on the business race that it collects in. It could make not only its own streets, but probably half of London streets, for that matter. So there is an, you know, an issue around equity in this and fairness and redistribution. That's why what's important is about what comes out of the national tax take in terms of helping with that redistribution, it seems to me. But also about what is the industrial edges that we need to look at. Um, I would say that actually the problem about our, our sort of industrial towns... Um, was actually something that started before the Labour government. I'm not saying we shouldn't have done more about it. I think discussion about globalisation and the benefits, it's helped some cities, but it's passed some areas behind. But there is something about industrial, uh, a, you know, a post-20th century industrial revolution, industrial revolution. And for me, having worked on energy, particularly for the last uh, five years, one of the really interesting things about the energy sector... It's one of the few sectors that really speaks to rebalancing our economy. Because it doesn't actually matter about it being north-south or east-west. Actually, the new energy solutions, both in generation and supply, <coughs> has something to offer in a way that maybe sometimes the financial sector in Leeds doesn't offer all of Yorkshire, or the tourism industry in York doesn't offer the whole of Yorkshire. Actually, energy is one of those interesting areas where it offers a much, I think, more promising post-industrial industrial landscape than what we've had in the past. And that, that's what we need to look at. And that's what I mean by what I said earlier about 
there has to be a really deep understanding about our local economies in all their glory or all their despair. Could any of the panellists like to come in on that? Yeah, I don't mind. Um, in terms of, um, sort of redistribution and fairness, I think that's a massive um, sort of issue at the moment, just in terms of the, the funding councils are currently getting. Um, and I think Caroline was right to say that there isn't a clear north-south divide, but you know, in terms of the funding that the government are giving Tory councils compared to Labour councils, it's really distinct. You know, since the Tories have come into power, Leeds have had a 60% cut, mm. while there are some councils under Tory control which their mm. funding has increased. So it's really shocking, and you know, any devolution deal would have to address that. Um, I think, in terms of the question about how far, you know, how far devolution can go, I think, you know, I mean, obviously there's lots of areas where it'd be great to devolve powers, but you know, there are definitely a few red lines. I think, um, I think like the criminal justice system and prisons and stuff would have to, you know, maintain under a national control. I don't think we could, you know, ever be in a situation where, you know, the kind of treatment you got given in the courts depended on whether or not you had a, a lenient council. Um, and I think I also think with the national curriculum as well that would, you know, always have to be set at a national level. Um, even though I do think local councils should have, or you know, metro mayors if they come in, should have more control over b uh, the ability to build schools, because um, that's a, a, a large barrier to councils at the moment. Charlie? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, so I think starting from the, the redistribution point, um, so I think Westminster Council, as you mentioned, currently pays. 75% of the money that it collects into the national pot that gets shared with other councils. I don't know if that's going to stay the same. I think it's going to change, but not massively, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Just look at what it gets from parking charges. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Um, uh, so, so previously, the amount of money councils have got has depended on need, right? That's that's what we insisted upon for years in government, and that, that you could demonstrate you had X, Y, and Z need, you would get a certain amount of money depending on that. Um, but it didn't, it didn't seem to change that much where the need was. So, like, it, it, was, it was a sticking plaster more than, more than actually a cure. And I think, you know, listening to what, what elected politicians say in even, even those areas, it seems to me that they are broadly supportive of more autonomy even if it might mean the way they get money changes. They don't, obviously don't want to lose lots and lots of money, but they're happy for it to move to a, to, to a, a system that isn't quite so need-determined. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not the, the biggest expert on, on why that is, but I, I guess it's because you know, partly, partly believe in, believe in if you create a situation where people are incentivized to create a certain outcome and people think they can, they can create that outcome. I, I don't know, but I think they're... You know, there clearly needs to be a large amount of redistribution because, because obviously the fact that, that as has been mentioned, rich Tory Tory councils are getting more money than they previously were, uh, and and areas where there's high deprivation are getting much much less money uh, is not on. Unfortunately, that is what is happening and will continue to happen until Labour gets back into government. Um, but you know, um, that that's the answer to most problems, to be honest. Um, Looking at uh, industrial policy, I mean, I don't know how to give a, a more complex answer than it needs to happen. Like, we need to have an industrial policy. We haven't had one. Um, and so we get things like uh, the Port Talbot Steelworks uh, nearly closing at the cost of something like 40,000 jobs across the country um, on the basis that the government doesn't want to pay, say, a million pounds a day in the short term to try and turn it around. Now, if you think about the cost of losing 40,000 jobs, that utterly dwarfs 
the cost of keeping those places open, but also, you know, like that there is there is long term strategic interests in doing so. And, you know, in the long term, you can try and find a way of making things profitable again. I guess the, the point I'm making is that the the assumption that we, we just let things work out. Actually, I mean, I, I guess it's bread and butter for labor circles that neoliberalism isn't always correct. Um, but but I think that it isn't right. Um, so so, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a clear idea of exactly what the industrial policy should be. I think probably it would be, it'd be founded around looking at what industries are going to be very relevant in the future, things like green industries and so on and so forth, all of these cliches. Um, but we should do that, and we currently really aren't. Um, and, and finally, I just because it, it kind of links to the, the question of, of the extent of, of devolution and you know, how, where do we stop, I would say there's an, there's an issue also with where do we stop in terms of how we make the splits, not just in what powers we devolve, right? So um, at the moment, what's happening is we're doing it on an ad hoc basis and a local area can sort of get together and say, we'd like these powers, which is, is good in some ways because it means that they're ready to take those powers, right? They, they decided they want them, they've, they've put the plans in place. But uh, as, as Alice observed earlier, um, there are lots of places in the Southwest where I'm from that have exactly the same issues as the places that are getting devolution deals. These places aren't going to get devolution deals, partly because of the way they're governed and it, it being a bit more staid, and partly because there isn't this prevailing sense of identity and semi-sort of grievance with the way things have previously been run. Um, and it seems to me that if we have a clear idea of how things need to be devolved, I don't see why we wouldn't apply that. I mean, this is a little bit more, I suppose, top-down in how top-down you are, which is a slightly meta, meta way of thinking about it, but we wouldn't push areas to go, look, actually, you need these powers, this is how it's best organised, uh, to, to, to think about taking more of them. Um, so, so I would say there should be an end to devolution, not insofar as, I mean, obviously there has to be an end to devolution, you can devolve the army, right? But not, in, but not insofar as what powers you devolve, but also in how you allow areas to determine themselves. And actually, sometimes you should be telling areas, you should be more devolved, get your act together. Do we have any more questions? You mentioned sort of the sort of identity and things um, that's important kind of when you think about devolution. And obviously that's sort of getting stronger and stronger when you see sort of rises like the SNP and stuff, like places in England, like get that sort of thing. Um, I was just wondering, um, how do you think Labour could use this to their advantage and ensure like by giving devolution bills it doesn't sort of um, foster the sense of national pride? Um, and also how... Doesn't foster. Yeah. And how you can make sure that like, devolution bills don't sort of isolate places. Fantastic question. I'll take two more. Adam? Quite a lot of us here in the Institute of Transport Studies, which is uh, Europe's leading, and if not the world's leading institute for transport studies. And following on from trolley bus just being cancelled in Leeds, it's always kind of joke, why do you have this great institution, but Leeds is the biggest city in Europe now without a rapid transport system. But then we look to Nottingham, and they've got a um, car park levy where they raise a lot of money. They've got a tram, they've got great buses, Manchester's got trams. Is Leeds just not being bold enough? Are they not being wasteful enough? They have certain powers, but why, what, what are the, how are these other Labour councils doing great things, but Leeds isn't? Okay, and one more? Mm. 
kind of too interlinked, which sounds about very quick. I think there's a danger with it. Although, like, we should democratise and devolve power in the UK, because it's like a horrifically centralised monarchy. <laughs> we need to look at. I think there's a danger that Labour councils see themselves as a sort of clever way of getting round austerity and actually just end up competing and being like, oh, do you know what? Oh, we want to attract more investment to Manchester. Let's cut our business rates. And that money will kind of always go to Manchester or Leeds or whatever. It won't go to Doncaster or Barnsley or mm. Wakefield or whatever. Um, and I mean, many Labour local authorities have done like a miraculous job at keeping things running and keeping services going when they've had like the vast majority of their funding cut. Leeds has kind of looks like it's managed it better than like Sheffield for example where like all the shore starts and children's centres closed down when I lived there and you know that was like one of the big social gains of the last like Labour government which just doesn't exist anymore. There is no shore start on London Road or Shower where I used to live. Like and rather than actually dealing with the central issue, which is the fact of austerity and we're having all our funding cut, instead you set up all of these different cities to compete with each other and to keep compete for powers and to compete for the deals. So it's like, yes, but on whose terms? And I think what I'd like to see is actually a lot more honesty of like, yes, we've got this far and we've managed to kind of get away with it so far, but we can't for another four years. I don't see how like 60% funding cuts could go on for another four years in Leeds without services collapsing, misleading to people's deaths and such and such like. The related question to that is then what kind of model of economic development do we have as well? You can be like, oh, let's be London of the North. Is London a model for economic development? Where people are having to leave the city, where people can't get houses, where people are like travelling like hours and hours to get to like low page of jobs. I speaking to like friends and people who live in London, I don't think we should look at that as a model mm. because yeah, unless you work in a city, yeah, okay, if you're one of the people who, like, clean the offices or who serve in the restaurants or whatever, it's, it's not good fun. <laughs> it's not this buzzing, kind of great environment that's, like, a fantastic place to work. Actually, it's increasingly just a nightmare. Mm. And actually, like, I think we can see parts of that economic model in Manchester and Leeds and stuff, and that's not to kind of romanticise manufacturing or anything, <laughs> but we should look at like well no it wasn't good because of the nature of the work it was good because it was unionised really like and well it kept people in work and paid them a wage yeah but you couldn't you can have like there's a question there of what kind of economic development and what kind of political settlement and how it goes on works yeah. That's a, that's a great question. Which I think are like, if it's the shoes, and if we don't deal with them, then yeah. it almost doesn't matter because you can have like devolved power but no actual kind of control if you've got no money, for mm. example, mm. or whatever. No, that's a fantastic question. I think we've got 10 minutes then for those answers. Who would like to take them first? Charlie? No, no. Uh, okay. Um, so, um, Sorry, I'm just trying to remember your question to begin with. It was, is, is, do, do we want to avoid fostering a sense of national pride? And, and that's, I presume, in the sense that, um, in the sense that we, we create competing identities where people see themselves as, as, as not, not British, right? And, and you get, is, is, that, is that kind of what you're driving at? Well, I'm from Cornwall, and we've got uh. our own nationalist party, which, with the rights of, like... Maybe in Kerno. I mean, I'm also from Cornwall, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, they, they get... <laughs> 
and then they sort of isolate themselves from. It's not it's not like a massive movement, but mm. it's still there and it's still at the back of everyone's mind wherever they vote. Um, well, yeah. So hopefully that won't happen in Cornwall. I mean, people like to exaggerate how how Cornish people feel. Everyone I think feels kind of Cornish, but they don't. They don't feel very nationalist at all, and you, you're generally laughed at if you say you want to leave, right? Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, look, I, 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 I'm. It's not fashionable to say these days, but I, I feel British, right? Fundamentally, it's my overriding identity. The second one I have is European, I guess, right? So it, it makes me feel kind of sad when I see people in Scotland saying, "Yeah, we're just not the same as you." we're different to you, we're not from the same country. I'm like, well, but I feel like we are. And so I don't want to foster this sense that like, that different groups of people around the country are totally different. Um, but I think that the answer is probably not, at least within England, is probably not about devolution and that having gone too far. It's probably much more about working out how we talk about A, being English, and B, working out how we talk about being British, <coughs> and specifically working out how to do that from the left. <coughs> Because in Scotland, most of the people who voted for independence are left-wing people, right? They're not right-wing people, they're left-wing people. And it's partly because we had a, we had a problem with, with nationalism on a British level that we have allowed nationalism to exist purely on a sort of sub, arguably sub-national, depending on where you define the nation-state basis. Um, I don't think that will be a problem with devolution deals, and I certainly won't hope it won't be a problem in Cornwall. Um, on to um, onto councils and austerity and that kind of that kind of thing. Um, so I, I agree that like some councils have done a miraculous job. Um, you know, you, you see councils where they've cut forty percent of their budget without making any any cuts to frontline services, and that's incredible. Uh, it's slightly questionable why they could do that in the first place, right? Like, what were they doing previously that allowed them to be spending forty percent more than they needed to be? I think there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there for Labour councils because we we in the Labour Party talk about uh, talk a lot about how we can spend money. We talk very little about how we can be efficient and save money. And one of the reasons we're not in government now is because people don't trust us to be efficient with money. And I hope, like the optimist that I take from this is that there is a generation of Labour councils that has learned to be utterly ruthless with how you spend your money and concentrated just on preserving frontline services. And hopefully they can influence the party and take it in a, a much more prudent uh, direction so that you know, every penny can be spent on helping people. Uh, rather than perpetuating a system that might be inefficient, um, so that's good. Um, and, and as for as for whether you know whether whether there's a problematic move to a more London style model for the North, I would simply say the problems of London are so different in the, in as far as like it, the, the the density uh, of of buildings, the density of of people, and uh, the just the concentration of wealth in London is is just not comparable, right? So like. Uh, if, if you walk through the centre of Manchester and you just walk, walk to the outskirts of the centre, right, just the very centre, you will see relatively wide open spaces. And they're not like uh, necessarily um, beautiful parks that are ringed with skyscrapers, right? They're spaces that could be filled with buildings but aren't, right? And there might be a problem with things like density. There might be a problem with house prices in, you know, um, or, or London-like problem in 20 or 30 years' time. But I think there is a lot of positive things that can happen before we get to problems like that occurring. And I would worry about those problems uh, when they get near occurring and, and try and solve the problems we have at the moment. Alice, would you like to go next? I think there was uh, one lead-centric question. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, the question about the trolleybus, um, I think that's been 
sort of plaguing the council for for a few years now, and I think it, it was never the the perfect transport public transport system that people wanted, and um, it divided opinion massively. And um, you know, I, I my ward isn't where it would have gone through, but I've had people come and talk to me about my surgeries about it, you know, complaining about it or saying why hasn't it happened yet. Um, but hopefully now that's out of the way, you know, we will be pushing more for you know a proper transport system. I think there's absolutely, I mean, if, what you said about London in that. You know, they still have lots of problems, but there's absolutely no reason why London should have this, you know, state-of-the-art public transport system, one of the best in the world, and that then, you know, the Secretary of State can come up for transport, can come up to Leeds and Manchester and say, well, actually, you know, they don't, they don't need that. They can, you know, they can have buses. It can take them an hour and a half to, you know, get to work. I don't think it's fair at all. I think we should, we should be pushing for that kind of system. And I think, you know, the model they've got in Manchester now with the trams is really good. Um, I'll just say a little bit about the, the regional identities sort of question and the SNP. Um, I mean, for me, I, I don't really think we should see regional identities as a negative thing. I, I don't think we should be competing against each other, but I think it's good if people feel you know, proud of their country, proud of their area. I think that's a good thing, and I think Labour should never be seen as being anti that. Mm. Um, I mean, in, in Yorkshire, we have the Yorkshire First, who are a, a very small party. You get very little votes, but you know, if we did have devolution and people did see Labour as this centrist, London-centric party, you know, maybe parties like that would rise. Um, so I think it's important that you know all our Labour politicians um, kind of seem grounded in their communities and the areas they represent, and people don't sort of view it as you know it's just someone from Westminster who's come up to you know help us out a bit, but actually you know our politicians are grounded in in the areas where they're meant to represent. Brilliant, Caroline. Um, well, I think the Labour Party should stand for value for money because we um, you know seek to rate as a party in particular, not exclusively. We seek to represent those without a lot of it. And every penny actually counts. And we should be looking at how best we deliver the best possible services. And that's why I do think it's important. And the that we look at public sector reform, how we embrace technology, can we do better services if we do things in a different way? I think part of the problem is, is that we've gone through a period <coughs> with massive cuts and a reform at the same time. And in some respects, that has created some creativity in the system, to be honest. But the other side of it, there's had to be some pretty drastic decisions to be made as well, which is difficult, and it's going to be even more difficult when we go into the next tranche of, of cuts, which it, it just gives that you know, double-edged sword to the debate we're, we're having this evening, the debate that is happening around devolution and how it will all pan out. Um, I think, like Alice um, Imogen, I think you know, being patriotic is a good thing. Actually, I'm a patriot. Um, I'm very proud of being English. Someone asked me, actually, I think it was at the Fabian National Conference the other week, which country did I, I like the most and identify with most? And actually, it was England. And why is that? Um, because actually, I think England um, makes an, is really diverse. Um, I think it is complicated, and complicated is not necessarily a bad thing. I think, actually, to be honest... We put most of the money in to help Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales out, and we should be proud of that. Um, not that they don't put stuff in, but they do. And I say that as someone for whom my family, you know, going back generations, came from the west of Scotland, from an agricultural community, moved to Kendal, where a paper mill opened, and they got work there. And then my grandmother, who was born in Kendal and went to school, and I still have family there, um, got into the pub trade with my granddad, managed a pub in Leeds called the Middleton Arms, which was torn down a few years ago, and then ended up in London 
where they managed a pub there and then a sweet shop before they went back up to the northwest and retired to Fleetwood. And so, uh, you know, we all of us have our own, if you like, individual stories about what weight makers up. And as someone born in London, obviously spent most of my life, I was at university in Norwich, and then I spent the last 20 years representing Doncaster. And for me, I think one of the connecting issues is, is also coming from a working class background as well. Because I have to say, I've never been one of those metrocentral uh, metro uh, liberals in, in that respect. I'm, um, I'm a meat and potato sort of person and, um, in terms of what we do. And I think actually, to be honest, when I became the MP in Don Valley, having not from a mining background, obviously, but it was the connection with some of the other things that I could relate to um, as being the first person in my family to go to university and parents who'd never gone on at all in terms of further and higher education and worked in uh, what would be called uh, manual boring um, jobs. Um, thanks for that. Um, so these are things that connect people together and one of the really important aspects of this whole devolution debate is about identity. Um, that's why you know we've got to make sure this isn't just seen as a city promise, because I think it will just make the same mistakes as what's happened um, in terms of Westminster and Whitehall. Um, I think it is about more than anything else helping lots of different communities cope with change. That you can value where you've come from and who you are. And they should be values that should be taken forward because they're good values. But part of it is how you cope with change as well. Particularly, you know, where, you know, in, you know, if you think about areas like Doncaster, like Redcar, you know, that were built on, you know, steel in the latter and coal and rail in my own area. <coughs> um, and there is still a collective memory of that. And this sort of sense of loss, actually grief and loss, about what has not re-emerged to fill those jobs and the pride that came with those jobs going forward. Now, some of that is a bit rosy-coloured, I have to say, because we all remember the things in the past that were great, not the things that were rubbish. Um, and sometimes we need to have a bit of a, a reality check about that. But I do think it is something that, um, nationally, but also I think with the development of um, more devolution in England, we can pay more attention to and, and not make the same mistakes. And I think that's so important, is coping with change. And the party, the Labour Party, for me, is the party about change. Because when we were formed, it was not about accepting the status quo. Things have happened like this, they should always happen for this. You don't go to school because you're the daughter or the son of a minor. Or you go to school because, oh my God. <laughs> that's so that was the powerhouse cut. Um, these were important things for our party. And therefore, we should be the party, should be more than any other party, be focused about how we make change happen in a way that feels that everybody feels they benefit from that change and can be feel to move on and cope with it. I think that is the big challenge in politics. And it goes to also the democracy and engagement as well. Adam, I don't know whether they, did, whether they asked the Institute for Transport Studies how to do this. With the tram? Do you know? No, I mean, it's quite funny because with the Department for Transport, some of the leading people yep. are from ITS. I totally... I just feel that the ideas aren't... I totally hear what you're saying. So one thing is, what are the resources you have? And I think this goes back to... Um, uh, uh, let me have a look at this. Was it uh, Peter's point or was it Ben's point? I can't remember, but it goes back to this issue around 
What are the what are the resources you have within your community already, particularly in education, that you can harness to help you make the right decisions? And I'm sure Alice will take that away with her as a councillor here in Leeds, that if you're trying to develop a transport project, you might want to go and have a chat with people who are involved in this on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's where you look at the niche. Why is it in Salford they're looking at Media City because the BBC oh. have had to relocate, and they didn't really like it, to Salford, I was up there the other week, it actually has worked. It is really amazing. Um, so they've looked at their niche and therefore in Salford Council, they're saying, how can we create this creative hub? And not everywhere has to be the same in all of this. But you have to go outside of the council uh, chamber and outside the discussions with government to look beyond the usual suspects to have some of that discussion. Um, my... Um, final point is, is that there's a massive amount of good practice around our country. Uh, what I've always found frustrated, frustrating as a politician, as a minister, is why we keep on reinventing the wheel, rather than looking at where someone's tried to solve a problem, not take it and just think that's the answer, but learn from it so we can be a little bit ahead of where we need to be in finding the solutions for our own communities. Um, and I hope that one of the things that will not, <laughs> will not be repeated in devolution is a parochialism that stops people looking above the parapet to see what else is happening elsewhere and how they might learn from that and bring that to bear on getting quick, quicker outcomes and success for the areas we seek to represent. And I really hope that's a lesson that devolution and those involved in it will learn from. Fantastic. Well, thank you all very much. Um, I hope you'll all join me in thanking our panellists. Uh, Alice Callan Carlo. Um, we will all be heading off for a drink afterwards. Everyone is welcome to join us. And we've got sign-up forms here if you are not a member of the Fabian Society and you would like to be one. Um, I've also got a sign-up sheet for your Twitter handles here and emails. Um, so thank you all for coming. Hopefully this won't be the last Yorkshire Young Fabians event. Um, certainly I've already got a head full of ideas for the next one. So I hope you'll all join us. Um, and once again, a round of applause for our panellists.